0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme... On a bright but cool autumn day here in the capital, is Lucy Stokes. Lucy is the managing director at Race Furniture, a British heritage brand which has been at the forefront of design and manufacture of seating for public spaces for well over seventy years. Um, Lucy, very warm welcome to yourself, and thank you ever so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Now the. Big challenge this year for leaders in all walks of life that has dominated the headlines has, of course, been the COVID-19 situation. So I feel it's appropriate that we start there. Uh, for yourself and your business, to what extent has the pandemic changed things?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously been an extremely challenging time for, for all of us. Um, and as we entered into the the new year after Christmas, I don't think obviously anybody realised that this is the year we were going to be face it. Um, for us, certainly, it's posed a, a huge amount of challenges. Um, the initial, obviously, impacts of personal um, from you know a, a family and home life perspective of, of all of our teams that work uh, with us at RACE, um, and obviously then immediately the knock-on in terms of how we're going to run the businesses, the impact of our sectors. As you said, we specialise in um, in public seating and really our core competencies with this as an auditorium, um, which are obviously hugely suffering at the moment and have been since the start of the pandemic. So for us, it was really a matter of the, the absolute primary concern for me as a leader was my people um, and how we go about protecting them and keeping them safe. Mm. So that was really the primary focus um, when we had the announcements from, from Boris Johnson back in March. We had been planning in the business during March to have contingency in place, to have the team all work fully from home um, and what closing down production completely would look like. Obviously, it's something in the 75-year history race has never ever had to contend with. Um, And obviously, if we can't be on-site manufacturing, then we can't fulfill our promises to our clients and customers. So it was really an overnight balancing act of making sure primarily our people were safe and protected um, and also understanding the impact of of the business and the implications on that. So it forced us to make some very fast decisions, very tough decisions very quickly, but always at the forefront, as I say, it was with the care of our people in mind. Um, For me as a leader in any business I've ever been in, it's absolutely abundantly clear to me. The primary asset is always your people. Everything else is secondary. And so that's the view that myself and my colleagues on our board take. Um, So we were all on the phone the night Boris Johnson made the announcement for the lockdown, um, 10, 11 o'clock that night. Um, And we unanimously decided across all of our group businesses that we would be responsible and close all of the businesses. Um, And really just protect our staff. And from there, we worked really closely with our clients, our contractors, our venues, to understand the implications on them and us. Um, And I'm really happy to say that although we had a a couple of months of of the business being completely closed, due to some commitments we had previously with some theatres in the country that were lucky enough to be able to sustain their projects and their refurbishments, we reopened the business um, on the 11th of May. And actually, it's allowed us to find new ways to adapt. Um, There's a huge amount of silver lining for our business in terms of giving people a huge amount more flexibility than we ever would have had before. Mm. So whilst, um, you know, being a leader at this time is, is without a shadow of a doubt the most challenging I've ever faced and I think anyone I speak to has ever faced, it equally has allowed us as leaders to look at, you know, how our people need to work what's mm. important to them um you know people across the country have been reevaluating their personal values and what's important to them to them and their life work balance so yes it's extremely tough it's it's you know we're still tough our, our theatre industry is, is heartbreaking in terms of the impact and we you know pride ourselves on working very closely with our venues and, and we work as a team with our clients we're very privileged to operate as a as a family, um, and so everything we do is very personal at race. It really matters to everyone. Mm. So to see the theatre sector suffering as it currently is is really quite heartbreaking. Um, and all we can do, obviously, as a business, is, is be there to, to support as and when. But speaking to you today, obviously, we're now in October, um, and we still don't have an idea of when the theatres will be able to to fully open. Um, Obviously, from our perspective as a business, we specialise in in the seating, um, and our clients' primary concern always, whether it's a university auditorium or a, a boardroom or a theatre, is always about capacity. So, obviously, the more seats they can get into the venue, the more revenue they can create. And so, for us to be in a position where we're you know potentially looking at how we decrease capacity and how people can socially distance in these venues absolutely goes against everything our clients stand for. So it's um, it's a very interesting, challenging landscape. Um, but as I say, you know, a lot of silver linings and, and has allowed us with our incredible design team to really hone some skill sets around design, layout, you know, how we great as mm. human beings, how we need to now live and work differently. Um, and I think for us, you know, one of my favorite quotes is the, is the Darwin quote about, you know, it's not the most intelligent or the strongest, it's those most able to adapt that survive. Mm. Um, and I think that's true of my business and, and every business across the globe right now. Um, and so yes, you know, our primary is still to increase capacity or maintain capacity in our venues for our clients, but we have to now go about things very differently. Mm. And it's, It's actually, um, it's a pleasure to work with, you know, there's a huge appetite with the architects, consultants, contractors to push forward, um, to not let this beat anybody and and to find a way. And I think, you know, that's a very British attitude um, and and one that we're all proud to, to have, that no matter what happens, everyone carries on and finds a way.
0: That's exactly the thing, isn't it? You ha- Despite, of course, the, uh, the positives and the learnings you can take from this, it's about being able to adapt and being able to pivot to deal with the challenges that it's, um, of course, inflicting upon venues and the theatre industry, as you said there. Um, how long do you think that sort of state of being subdued for that industry is going to last for because even when we do have a working vaccine in place, God willing, fingers crossed, that does happen and the virus itself is then no longer an immediate present danger, it still could take some time for people to summon up the courage to go back out into venues with lots of people just because of the prolonged anxiety and heightened awareness that all of this is going to cause. So it still could take some time for things to recover, and that means that businesses like yours are going to have to keep adapting and keep thinking of new ways to generate income streams, perhaps for quite some time.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Scott, and that that that's exactly where we are. Um, I mean, you can imagine we've you know we've gone through a, a huge amount of um, strategy and, and focus, and looking at how we adapt the business almost on a on a weekly basis, um, since kind of March, April, um, I looked at other markets, looked at what was viable, but I think what was really apparent that, you know, our core competency is the seating and the design and, and the venues, and that's very much where we want to remain. We just need to find a different way. It's um, it's very difficult at the moment with this landscape for us to, to really have a hugely long-term view, just Purely as an example, so we had a number of um, theatre projects at the start of, of lockdown um, that, you know, one of the main drivers that they generally have huge renovations is because they've got new shows being committed. And a lot of which come over from Broadway over to the West End. Um, and there's mm-hmm. a huge amount of finance and commitment um, in these productions. And obviously what we've seen the last six months is those productions be pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. and Last month, the majority of them were pushed into 2021. So at that point, it became quite apparent to me that actually, <clears throat> I think you're right in terms of you've got the, the imminent threat of COVID at the moment and the theatres simply cannot open um, to the social distancing rules because you know the majority of theatres have to have at least 80-90% capacity to break even. So for them to open at twenty twenty five percent capacity it's just not viable, which is why you're seeing a lot of the theaters remain closed um, so we have that lag in terms of them being able to be at capacity and likewise, as you rightly said, interestingly the the most frequent visitors apparently to the to the theaters that you know the demographic that that really are the patrons are the older generation. And obviously that generation are in the at-risk category um, and are much more, I think, protected in terms of the shielding, et cetera. And so Mm. for the theatres to overcome that and make sure that people feel safe to come back and enjoy life pre-COVID, it's very difficult to say, but I honestly honestly don't think that we're going to see any normal levels until probably the end of 2021. Um, In which case as human beings, we need to find ways to adapt. You know, lots of theatres are finding ways to adapt in terms of online productions or outdoor productions where possible. Mm. Um, and for us as a business, we are lucky in that we specialise not just in theatres, but also in um, lecture halls, university auditoriums, um, and corporate auditoriums. Mm. And obviously, that side of, of the business is um, is less affected. It absolutely is still affected, but less So so the universities, we've definitely seen a pullback in terms of new projects happening um, because obviously at the moment the universities are in a very similar situation to the theatres in that they can't have all the students in the lecture theatre. So we are focusing very heavily on, we've got some very bespoke solutions that allow the the universities to have almost a modular approach to their seating, which can absolutely afford them to have less capacity in the rooms. Um, So our design team are working really hard on that at the moment and that's what we're doing with a lot of our university clients. Um, We're also given a lot of master classes in terms of design and space planning and layout. We have a a huge amount of expertise in the business um, that on a daily basis doesn't usually we don't push to the forefront because we're so busy with projects, but it's actually allowing us now to really educate a lot of the architects and, and main contractors. Um, so, again, that's another silver lining for us. Um, and then with the private clients, um, the more corporate side of the business, where they have, you know, boardrooms, auditoriums, et cetera, at, at the moment, Touchwood seems to be fairly sustained. Um, there is definitely an appetite from that sector to absolutely continue on, to carry on with their investments. And obviously, they're looking well beyond The imminent COVID impacts. They are looking at, you know, well, in a year's time, eighteen months' time, we still need to have people in our in our buildings. We still need our staff to be in an auditorium to listen to to launches, etc. And so that side is is fairly sustained at the moment, and that's really where we're focusing.
0: And um, I think just to move away from the sort of doom and gloom of COVID for a moment, Mm. there is some congratulations (laughs) in order because 2020 does of course mark the 75th year of Race Furniture um, which is fantastic, business has been on for for a very very long time and um, of course your work has been recognised in various different places, I mean of course some of your seats that were featured in the Festival of Britain back in the 50s are on show in places like the V&A Museum Um, so the business has achieved quite a lot but with regards to the, uh, the immediate future and I know we don't have a crystal ball to sort of look too far ahead because what we have seen is that with the need for businesses to be in this cycle of adapting constantly because of changing guidelines, changing circumstances, we can only really plan for days and weeks as opposed to months and years now. But in an ideal world, Lucy, um, where is it that you really hope the business is in a year's time and what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved?
1: Um, Well, I mean, one of my main drivers in joining race um, after meeting the incredible team that, that we're privileged enough to have at race was really, I was very clear early on that my, my role is to protect that legacy of the last 75 years. Um, mm-hmm. And as you say, you know, from Festival of Britain right up to the Royal Opera House, we are very privileged in, in the projects we get to, to work on. So I was very clear I need to protect this legacy and, you know, I need to leave the business in an enhanced way. So that's my role is to make sure that my people and and the business are left in a better position than when I joined. Um, And so for me, yes, it's very difficult to predict the next 12 months. It's very difficult to predict the next week at the (laughs) the moment, to be honest. But we do have clearly a long-term view and a long-term strategy that we are sticking to. And my hope would be that we are the other side of COVID in terms of from a humanitarian perspective. Um, everyone has a bit more free movement. But that our legacy is from this, that we have worked closely with our clients and venues and the general public that use all of these spaces because that's ultimately what we're doing it for. Our legacy, really, I would like in 12 months is to have worked really closely to find new solutions of how we're going to live and move and use these venues and enjoy them going forward. So it gives us an opportunity to come together as industries and as people to look at, okay, so the game has changed slightly, so we need to adapt. So what can we leave behind? What's going to be different? For me, I'm incredibly proud of my team. I honestly cannot tell you the level of resilience and commitment and determination that I've seen from every team member at race is utterly overwhelming and so I am really clear that with the people that we have at race um, and with the attitude and and commitment they have we absolutely can make a change for the better for all of our theatres in the UK and for our university halls for our students and for everyone that uses a public space so I would like us to come out of this side ever stronger clearly um, but with a much closer partnership and understanding of what we need as human beings and therefore, our legacy will be to, to leave these venues um, in an enhanced state. So I think, you know, everything is about evolution. Mm. You know, Henry Ford, when he created the car, you know, people said, well, you know, did you ask for feedback? He said, well, no, if you ask people, they would have said they want a faster horse. They wouldn't have known that they need a car. And I think we have an opportunity as leaders to look at all of our industries the same way. So, we need to take the lead in terms of, OK, COVID has given us a huge curveball, but actually this is an opportunity for us all to come together, to use our skill sets, to, to create even better environments for us all going forward.
0: You're exactly right. And I absolutely love the positivity, Lucy. It's absolutely infectious. And I think we all need a good dose of that over the uh, the next few weeks and months going forward to get us all through this, because you're absolutely right. It is the role of leaders to take on some responsibility, be beacons of hope and inspiration, and channel that entrepreneurial spirit to not only find solutions but also seize upon the opportunities that will be there as a result of all of this because out of every crisis does come opportunity and you know i actually think just given how inspiring it's been having you join us on the uh, the program today i think it would actually be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next 12 months and have you back on the show just to see how things are coming along um, and what's happening behind the scenes at race by then
1: would be an absolute pleasure. I would love to.
0: It would be a pleasure for me as well, Lucy. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the air today. And to be honest, it's a shame we don't have more time on the programme. Otherwise, we could discuss this long (laughs) into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, But I really do appreciate your time because it is so important in the context of what we're doing and trying to get the authentic voices of British industry out there into the national sphere. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime until we do hopefully get to speak again.
1: Likewise. Thank you very much, Scott. We really appreciate it. It's nice to have a voice um, and on behalf of our team. So we really appreciate your time.
0: I'd also like to reiterate that message to everybody tuning into the podcast today as well. It's important that you do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Lucy Stokes, Managing Director at Race Furniture, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Geoff Hurst. Now, during his professional career, Sir Geoff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City among others but of course he remains most well known for that famous treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. It saw England lift the dual remake Cup, its first um, World Cup and only World Cup title to date and it also made to Jeff the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final. So still, he remains a legend. Um, he'll be coming on to the programme to look back at some of the highlights of his illustrious career, including that day in 1966, discussing the importance of robust leadership throughout and leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS, who have been doing everything that they can during this most trying time. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
2: Uh, good morning. How are you?
0: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
2: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It's it's lovely.
0: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it, or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
2: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record, and Goodness me, that's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I would want have to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievement is about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm.
0: Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal... I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time, and there's quite a bit of a joke about that, but there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened, the ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4 and lifted the World Cup, but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you?
2: Yes, I think people, um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game, towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished. I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, Beyond the sand into the corral, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Pilkowski, the German keeper. By that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
0: And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership be it in sport or in business you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
2: Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes, it, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making, but has going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in all mm-hmm. walks of life. an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
0: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, to Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming. But that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by... The national Health Service and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
2: Oh absolutely, particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for, w- for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital and uh, important it is, is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were injured almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with, with masks and so on, and, and also into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with. And just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moved from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just, uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach as who is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot all over, right? different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Oh yes, I think that, yes, I think leadership leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and the great teachers and coaches and managers have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing, into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like that was a really stupid thing today, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continues making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their careers
0: completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true?
2: <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or a place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenways, it it's called in Chelmsford, We, that three or four lads, (coughs) lived quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road. And with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A, because it was a a cul-de-sac. And B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there weren't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across the the road. Um, And used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree, where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making and wood gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, Took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when there's nowhere else to play, apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true.
0: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
2: Well, my father was obviously the the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He he played uh, lower down for Oldham, Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. I was born in Ashton, under the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed And I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he had, had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and, uh, they saw something in me and took me on the, what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school the age. And, uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that uh, that's how it, how it happened. Um, uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me, uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father, um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood, um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre half at school. Um, he, uh, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed
0: dramatically. And I suppose, as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
2: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, they sort of weren't messing about t- between the two. I had one first class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got nought and, and nought not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from the, I told a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. The um, v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games, no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for Mm. a midfield player. So um quite changed dramatically. Um that was sixty sixty two, sixty three season, the three years before the World Cup.
0: what was Gordon like as a leader on the field?
2: Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had, uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at saw When Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, sort of, not just tipping balls out agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very... Mild mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him, and who uh, are close to him, and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for for Banksy.
0: And we were very lucky,
2: very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a, a world-class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play with a world-class player but in, in the squad. And Ray Wilson, our left-back, I would always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, to be successful at that level to compete in their level and discipline was one of them and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that and if he wanted to put he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson which we did and um, in those early six months and a year a couple of years he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea he lost a bit of weight and uh, although he was a little bit in himself hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top, being, being an England player. But i compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer role. Mm-hmm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think it he, he was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
0: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England?
2: Um, Well, I think Ireland was just still well with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of. of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it was difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate hey, at West Ham that it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with both uh, City for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. they won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club, and very close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So It was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, that I was. I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contributions to that success that i had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, think he was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was a that good was time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think, a month, I think it was. And I uh, enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it pays for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. It's <laughs> new kitchen.
0: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that... You realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career.
2: Yes, yeah, so I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so of so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when. Um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, 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 whatever the word is, I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, Time after I finished playing or managing or playing things during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably.
0: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
2: Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Ralph Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or mental courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful boss is, is is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alphamsey, because I take it into my my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alpha Ramsey period even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
0: And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela. In fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways, and I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
2: Yes, it is very good, good advice. Yes.
0: So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further.
2: Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you.
0: Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast.